Hey, everybody, just a quick note up top because we forgot to say it in the episode. We have got our next annual Q&A coming up. So if there's anything you've been wanting to know about how we run the podcast, about music stuff or whatever else might be on your mind within reason, get your questions into discordpod at gmail.com or you can tweet us at discordpod by about the first week of April. And then on April 11th, you will have your answers. Thanks, everybody. Now on with the show. That's one thing that's always like uh, been a major difference between like the performing arts to me and being a painter, you know? Like a painter does a painting and he does a painting, that's it. You know, he's had the joy of creating it and he hangs it on some wall, somebody buys it, somebody buys it again, or maybe nobody buys it and it sits up in a loft somewhere till he dies. But he's never, they, nobody ever says to him, you know, nobody ever said to Van Gogh, paint a starry night again, man. <laughs> You know, he painted it, that was it. Not like we love welcoming you to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums, song by song. I'm John McFerrin. I'm Amanda Rogers. I'm Rich Bennell. And I'm Ben Marlin. And now it's time to turn it over to this week's host, Amanda. What album do you have for us, Amanda, and why did you pick it? Today, we are moving back into Joni Mitchell world. Ooh, it's yeah. time to talk about Court and Spark. And the reason I picked this one is because my last album that I did was prog rock and it was kind of on the difficult side. So I thought I would go with something real simple and straightforward like Joni Mitchell. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, I didn't really think this through, but it's all good because Joni Mitchell has so many brilliant albums. It seemed like time and maybe past time to cover another one. We talked about Blue like way back in the beginning. And I went with Court and Spark because this is my favorite of her albums. And this is actually the album I recommended back in episode 11 when Ben hosted our episode about Blue. So this is me making sure all of you do what I say. (laughs) You're you're checking back in with us. Yes, ma'am. So Amanda, what can you tell us about your history with Court and Spark or with Joni Mitchell Moore? Well, this is... You know, continuing what I said in the Blue episode, which I know all of you remember vividly. Yes. I didn't really get into Joni Mitchell until I was in my early-ish 30s. So this is only like seven, eight years ago. And the first album I tried was Blue, as I talked about in that episode. And then the next one after that was Court and Spark, just because it's also very, very highly regarded. And because I already knew and liked Help Me and Free Man in Paris, And from the first time I listened to it, I was immediately enthralled. And it's one of those albums that only gets more and more and more rewarding with repetition. So, Ben, you hosted the episode on Joni Mitchell way back when. Uh, Do you want to tell us anything about you and Joni Mitchell or you and Court and Spark? I've been a Joni Mitchell fan since college. uh, And I talked about this in the Blue episode. I bought Blue and I immediately loved it. And I still love it. I mean, that was the first episode that I chose to host for this podcast because uh, the album means a lot to me. Um, was that your first one? It, it was, was, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. I was a little slow getting started. 
I was oh, finishing that's right, up you the were book. writing your book. Yeah. And that book, by the way, is all the days of his life. I and mean, it's all the David Bowie songs. And you should all go on Amazon and buy it because it's really good. Thank you. Blue almost set a standard for Joni that's that's been hard for the rest of her discography to live up to, at least from my perspective. She's never less than brilliant lyrically and as a singer, but I tend to gravitate towards her songs that are kind of immediate and melodic and catchy, like the ones on Blue. Um, and the ones where there's just the ones where there's more unadorned focus on her voice. After Blue, I've had a harder time getting into the rest of her work. I have all of it. I've listened to a lot of it over the years. It's all obviously brilliant, but I think it's it's less accessible. And I think she was going for that. Like It's not a secret that it, most of her music is less accessible than Blue, but that means it's been a process for me to get into it. But that means that you know getting into Joni Mitchell's catalog has been almost like a lifelong process for me. And I'm fine with that. I mean, that's that's a good process. Court and Spark, I've heard it a lot over the years. I've liked it a lot. And I, I've i heard it grouped in with the rest of her classics. So I just assumed, yeah, it's, it's as good as all of them. Um, as I've listened to it for this episode, and I'll talk about it as we go on, I was a little surprised that it didn't hit me as much as my favorite Joni Mitchell music. And, you know, I'll get into why that is, but I'm also really looking forward to hearing about why you all love it so much. Oh, this is going to be fun. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Rich, you were also on the Joni Mitchell episode. I was, yes. Do you have anything you want to share about Joni or Court and Spark and you? Well, this time around, I will not be performing a parody of a late 90s novelty Eurodance song themed around Joni Mitchell. (laughs) Sorry, I I didn't write one for Court and Spark, so consider yourselves spared. (laughs) (laughs) yeah otherwise i don't really have much to add that i didn't already say in the blue episode like that that was honestly the first time i'd really listened to Joni mitchell and since then i've gone from wow blue is a good album to wow Joni mitchell is one of the most profoundly talented musicians of the 20th century and i didn't realize that (laughs) and listening closely to court and spark has done very very little to change that position if anything i agree with it more than ever it rules Okay, so as for me, uh, I am a relative latecomer to Joni, and this is something that both leaves me feeling a little embarrassed and somewhat angry. Uh, So my uh, familiarity with Joni goes back to graduate school. Uh, Back in 2003, I bought two albums of hers, Clouds, because that had both sides now on it, which I love. Mm -hmm. And I bought Blue because every list I came across said, if you're only going to buy one Joni Mitchell album, you should buy Blue. And I liked them, but honestly, my main reaction in listening to those two albums, for the most part, was, wow, these songs are not like both sides now, are they? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I, I, I never, you know, got to a point of like saying, oh, I'm... I don't know about this Joni Mitchell person, but she she kind of fell into a perpetual, I'll, I'll get to her later. But that was a very crowded list. And for over 15 years, I didn't get to her later. So fast forward many years. Uh, on my website, one of the things that I, I have there, I've had there for many years, is I keep a, a public list of what music I have in my collection in whatever form, just because people ask me about it all the time. And... For many years, uh, if somebody was inclined to notice it, I just had this two-album entry for Joni Mitchell. 
And in 2019, and actually sometime after uh, Ben's episode on Blue, somebody observed that it was pretty ridiculous, <laughs> given the makeup of the rest of my collection, that I only had two Joni Mitchell albums. Fairly chastened, I said, you know what, I, I've been meaning to get around to this. I'm going to give her more of a shot. And so I, I bought a collection of her first six albums just to get them all together. I, I listened to Court and Spark, but not well enough. And with the rest of them, I said, uh, I guess I'll just throw these in the shuffle pile. I'll, I'll get around to it at some point. And over the years, I, I would hear her tracks pop up uh, from time to time. And over and over, I thought, huh, this... This isn't bad, but then Shuffle would move on to whatever the next thing was, and I didn't really make much headway with her. Then uh, a couple of years ago, it occurred to me that, you know, I really do want to, to, to give her a really good close study. And the best way at the time for me to persuade myself to do that was to put her on my itinerary for my site back when I still updated it. And so... As, as the time approached, I finally started giving her albums uh, close study, close focused listens as opposed to just having them in the background. And what I discovered was one of the greatest songwriters I had ever encountered in my life. To a degree that I was not entirely prepared for, I knew her by reputation, but what I didn't realize was the manner in which I would appreciate her. I'll, I'll touch on this some as we go through the, through the commentary of individual tracks. But Joni Mitchell is someone where I find that her general reputation in the mainstream does not do her favors. It does not properly represent her. Mm. Um, what she is as a songwriter, as a song creator, as a sound painter, does not get respect too often, she's, I think she's reduced to just a small handful of hits because that's what people can immediately understand. And people will, you know, make reference to some of the mo more emotional aspects of Blue and then the rest kind of gets shoved to the side. And for me, she is just about the platonic ideal of what I would want in a 70s songwriter. I haven't gone beyond the first eight albums, but I love and cherish those albums so much and court and spark is an album that makes my jaw drop through the floor i'm so happy to hear that <laughs> oh yes so amanda what can you tell us about the making of court and spark i 
Well, we covered Joni Mitchell's early life and career back in the blue episode, so I'm not going to retread that ground here. And thanks for doing my work for me, Ben. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) I'm just going to pick up where blue left off. So after that album came out, Joni sort of went into seclusion for a little bit. She moved back to Canada briefly to a house she built on an isolated plot of land in British Columbia. And personally, I don't know why she'd ever leave that adorable little house in Laurel Canyon, but whatever, it's her life. Anyhow, well, while she was holed up in BC, she wrote the excellent album For the Roses. Yeah. <laughs> Much of which is about processing the end of her relationship with James Taylor. Him? And we talked about that <laughs> in the blue episode. <laughs> we talked about that in the blue episode. But in a nutshell, he was a heroin addict, and it's very difficult to be in a relationship with a heroin addict. So For the Roses is a terrific album, and in my head marks the point where Joni Mitchell entirely stopped caring about being commercially accessible and just wrote what was in her heart. Except for the song You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio, which was written when record label mogul David Geffen insisted that she put something on the album with at least a little smidgen of radio potential. Driving into town with the dark cloud above you, dialing the number who's bound to love you. Oh, honey, you turn me on. I'm a radio, I'm a country station, I'm a It's the funniest title in the world in that context. It really I is. I love for a it song, so much. For a song that was written specifically because somebody to, told her to make a radio hit. So around 1972, she moved back to L.A. when David Geffen bought a great big house and asked her to come be roommates with him. Because despite their semi-antagonistic professional relationship, they liked each other very much. They were good friends. And she was not in the best emotional place at the time. So she went ahead and moved in with her friend. Although she kept the property in British Columbia, and I think she still lives there part of the time, and still owns that Laurel Canyon house, too, although she hasn't lived there since, like, 1971. Also, in 1972, she went on a concert tour and her opening act was a young upcoming singer songwriter named Jackson Brown. And they had a brief relationship during this time and he would go on to become the primary antagonist of Joni's next album, Cord and Spark. Yeah, he would. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So before we get started on Cord and Spark and taking down Jackson Brown. (laughs) We'd like to say thank you to our newest Patreon subscribers, Darren and Susan. It's down to you, constant strangers, to enable us to provide Discord and Rhyme ad-free. And we are very grateful for all of you. If you want to join in, go check out patreon.com slash discordpod and see the perks we have for you in return, including exclusive bonus episodes. Most recently, we talked about Weird Al's Rolling Stones polka medley. And there are also episodes on Heim, Kylo LaGrange, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and, of course, several variations on the theme of the Moody Blues. If you would like to support us in other ways, just go to people's parties and tell everyone there about Discord and Rhyme. And if you just want to say hi, hit us up on Twitter at DiscordPod or email DiscordPod at gmail.com. We love you all, 
and really enjoy hearing from you. And now we'll move on to the album. We will start with the title track. This is Court and Spark. For sure I'd seen him Dancing up a river in the dark Looking for a woman to court And spark He was playing on the sidewalk For passing change When something strange happened Glory train passed through him So he buried the coins he made in people's park And we're looking for a woman to court And spark It seemed like he read my mind He saw me mistrusting him and still acting kind He saw how those opening piano chords Mm. they're so good this is one of the relatively few albums where i really can hear a big difference between my vinyl and digital copies i don't know a whole lot about mastering or whatever but in this case it's such a cliche but the vinyl really does sound significantly richer and warmer than the cd so Mm. i highly recommend tracking this down on vinyl it shouldn't be too hard Yeah, it's relatively easy to find. This was a popular album. Yeah. The next thing that you can't help but notice is that Joni's voice sounds significantly different. It is much deeper and huskier than it used to be. And I believe that's partly just the human condition. You know, her voice is aged along with the rest of her. And partly because she smoked approximately 84,000 cigarettes a day. (laughs) (laughs) Now, smoking is just about the worst thing you can do. To your singing voice. Very occasionally you'll get a case like Roy Orbison, who also smoked 84,000 cigarettes a day, but still sounded like Roy Orbison up till the day he died. But more often it ends up like Brian Wilson, whose angelic falsetto was absolutely destroyed by about the mid 70s. Or Joni Mitchell here, who used to be a soprano, but nowadays is a baritone. Or Greg Lake. Oh, yeah. But although I do not recommend that singers take up smoking, Court and Spark caught Joni at exactly the right point in the degradation of her singing voice. It, it's just as flexible as ever, but more mature and more expressive. And she's given up some of the little quirks on her earlier albums that I always find really annoying. For example, the thing I complained about on the Blue episode where she'll hold a note at the end of a phrase and then take it up an octave for emphasis or whatever with a heavy vibrato on that top note, which to my ears sounds like she's sometimes using it to disguise the fact that she couldn't really hit that note. I drew a map of Canada, oh Canada. She's quit doing that by Court and Spark, possibly because she just couldn't anymore. And honestly, it's a real relief. 
So, yeah, I mean, her voice sounds fantastic on this whole album. And she's really stretching out as a songwriter here, too. The rhyme scheme and phrasing in this song are both very strange. I haven't analyzed the structure to see if it fits any particular poetic form. So I'm not I'm not sure exactly what she's doing here, but whatever it is, it sounds amazing. Between the odd structure and the relatively abstract imagery, the whole song is just a tad unsettling and startling, but underlaid with those warm, fuzzy piano chords throughout. And this is one of those really wonderful songs that makes me have a lot of feelings that I can't quite identify. This is, of course, also where we get the title phrase. I have always read the album title as nouns, you know, court like a king's court, perhaps a crimson king. And spark like a tiny flame. And I love how those words go together. But in the song here, it's verbs. You know, court as in date with the intent of marriage and spark as in the old timey word for flirting. And I still love how they go together. Those two words just sound gorgeous in combination with each other. At the end of the song, I just love the final line. His eyes were the color of the sand in the sea And the more he talked to me, you know, the more he reached me But I couldn't let go of L.A., city of the fallen angels She writes about her love of Los Angeles quite frequently, and it's expressed really well here. And I'm sure Joni Mitchell is not the first person in history to refer to the city of angels as the city of the fallen angels, but she does it well. There's a lot of emphasis on that phrase and that contrast, you know, she loves this place, but still acknowledges its faults, sets up an album that is full of emotional contrast and contradiction. All right. So couple things I want I, a couple categories I want to uh, talk about here is uh, I'm gonna get to the song uh, for a bit but I want to just share some of my general thoughts on how court and spark uh, the album generally where I, I see it fitting in her her catalog and also some of uh, what I think about what it reflects her priorities in, in her priorities as a songwriter because court and spark is because of the fact that it was so popular and and uh, it won so many awards, it's framed as you know the, this big poppy jewel in her catalog. That that needs a big boulder of salt with it because it's the big poppy <laughs> the jewel, big heaping bowl of salt relative <laughs> to what's around it. Like she she pulled back a little bit and uh, made did some things in the arrangements to to make things more attractive and she made sure that you know there was enough in the way of big shiny hooks just enough to be able to give a plausible cover to the idea that this is an accessible uh pop album it is not and court and spark the song is not really that kind of song the the, the thing that i always come back to actually i'm glad you mentioned uh that closing line like i i think of when those those uh, those chimes come in, what I think of is if in your like if you're in an airplane flying into a major city at night, maybe Los Angeles, maybe somewhere else, and you come below the cloud cover, and suddenly there's just light everywhere. Yeah, it's it, it's so cinematic, and and the thing yeah. is, and I think that that's important because 
Joni Mitchell, you know, before she was a songwriter, she was a painter. And she used the the painting approach in terms of what sorts of things was she uh, looking to do in her art. That came up over and over in the way that uh, she approached the creation of songs. And she was very transparent about this over time. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, she, she would reference this all the times in her stage banter and in other contexts. Now, extending from that, one of the, the, the things that I'm, I'm really impressed by her, that really impresses me about her, and that I wasn't expecting when I started to really, really seriously try to understand Joni Mitchell, is, you know, she, she's so often pegged in, the, in if, if, you're, if you're only coming to her from both sides now or uh, a couple of her other hits like uh, Big Yellow Taxi or whatever, as primarily as uh, a straight ahead songwriter, or maybe she's the, uh, you know, kind of the godmother of, you know, people writing uh, sad, angry, uh, bittersweet songs about relationships. And she is the godmother along that line. <laughs> But in so many ways, she's also the godmother of figures like Kate Bush and Bjork. I am so happy you said that because later on, she absolutely I absolutely is. I almost drew a comparison between Joni Mitchell and Kate Bush. But then I thought, you know what? I don't know enough about Kate Bush and I'm going to sound insane. So thank <laughs> you for validating me. I can definitely hear it throughout this album, like the way that the, you know, theoretically, like the vocal melodies are kind of like formless, but that in turn, like makes a whole new form of its own of its in its own right. Well, I'm going to go even one step further. So, again, one of the things that impresses me so much about Joni, again, is that she, she's somebody who, if she wants, can take the approach of creating great, interesting pop-ish music, putting focus on arrangement and the sound of her voice and atmosphere and everything except for tunefulness, right? Mm. And the artist that I keep thinking of as kind of the – my my – perfect version or my idealized version is actually somebody who came up in the Prague compilation episode who actually also came up in the super trap episode. And that is Peter Hamill, who is <laughs> the lead vocalist for Vandegraaff generator, but also had an extensive solo career of his own. And to me, he's like in the seventies, he was to me like the biggest example of somebody who basically wanted to make music with everything except for the most obvious thing. He succeeded over and over, and he's someone I really admire. And I, I think of Joni Mitchell very much in that category. Mm. And I think that she wouldn't have been offended by this comparison. I think that because, again, like I don't think she was somebody who was averse to you know taking more difficult approaches to things. 
all this is to say that Joni Mitchell is someone who has to be approached in many different ways, from many different angles. She goes off in so many directions, and she is a far more total songwriter and musician than she has given credit for in so many other contexts. And that's part of what makes me love her so much. Rich, what do you think? Oh, well, I, I kind of just wanted to like bounce off basically the same point that you made because like, it just in terms of like, you know, Joni Mitchell as a quote unquote pop songwriter, because like, well, so, so we didn't plan it this way, but this winter we've just, we just happened to have been covering a lot of like really complex, like kind of boundary shifting music yep. spanning a yeah. really wide range of genres. Like we did John Coltrane, uh, then Aphex Twin, then Pear Ubu, and now we're doing Court and Spark, which you wouldn't think is of a piece with those three. But like th- they're all really complicated albums that we covered. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and the thing complicated about- and experimental and. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they 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 real they're really out there. But the thing about those first three artists I mentioned is that like you know when you're listening to like Aphex Twin, you're fully aware at all times that the music is like super out there. He is not trying to hide that. But throughout Court and Spark, like you know Joni Mitchell is banging out some truly dense, like harmonically complex, uh, just plain complicated songwriting like bordering on jazz and we'll get into more of that as we go along but she like Mm -hmm. she makes it sound like the warmest most accessible pop music you've ever heard yes that's such an impressive line to walk to me it's pop subversion Mm -hmm. yeah and also since i'm the native californian on this panel amanda asked me to provide some context about the line so he buried the coins he made in people's park so in this research paper, I will, no, no, no this will be really short. The, the history of People's Park is like way too complicated to go into in any detail, but like in a nutshell, it's an actual park in downtown Berkeley. It was central to the start of the free speech movement, and it's been the site of numerous, uh, sometimes violent confrontations between residents on one side and the university, UC Berkeley, and law enforcement on the other side. And I, I haven't really been able to unravel the lyrics on this song per se, but Joni Mitchell seems to be using People's park as like a you know a potent symbol of like the late 60s early 70s counterculture just just like a symbol her audience would recognize immediately basically interesting that makes sense yeah. anyway that's enough about people's park for now i'll put more information in the show notes but it's too much of a tangent so ben what do you think of the title track just one second i have to go through my notes and delete all the peter hamill comparisons that i've written down <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you have plenty of original peter hamill material ben <laughs> um I want to go with what, what Amanda was saying about Joni's voice, because that struck me too. I mean, her, her voice is so full here. Yeah. I didn't realize that it was because of cigarettes. I thought she just was sort of pulling a Paul McCartney and deciding to sound completely different. I'm sure there's something. That's also possible. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a combination. Um, and as Amanda talked about, you don't have some of the tones from that you would get in blue, that those flighty tones, which I really liked. She sounds older and wiser. Uh, I guess by definition, she is older at when she you know, made this album, but wiser doesn't come naturally. You sort of have to earn that, and I'm pretty sure she had. Um, I thought the flightiness was charming for what it's worth. The does he love me? Doesn't he? Does he? Doesn't he? Ah! Melody swoops up. Melody plummets <laughs> down. I mean, I love that, but... I also really admire when an artist can change something so fundamental about her approach and not lose what makes her great. And, and she does that here. Mm-hmm. As for the song Court and Spark, it's fine. <laughs> you know, I, I think I, I have a different take on a lot of these songs than you all do. 
the song is incredibly emotional and I can see why a listener would be devastated by it. The melody just doesn't strike me the way that my favorite Joni melodies do. It doesn't stay with me. And as a result, the brilliant aspects of the recording, they have a harder time sticking with me. So when I think about the album Chord and Spark, I always think it starts with the song Help Me. I never remember this one. Hmm. You'd give the Sistine Chapel a 7 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> one of the higher ratings on Ben's scale. There you go. <laughs> All right. We're done here. Let's move on to the aforementioned track two. This is Help Me. Help me. I broke apart my <laughs> Oh, don't. I've got no soul to tell. <laughs> I better turn it down. There are some naughty words coming Peter up. Peter Hamill. <laughs> Sorry, guys. That was Closer by Nine Inch Nails. Oh, okay. Yes, it was. I only know the Weird Al version. Oh, my word. I love Closer by Nine Inch Nails. I kind of want to listen to that now. <laughs> Let's just change this into a Nine Inch Nails episode. <laughs> Do it. Nah, here's the Joni Mitchell song. Such an incredible track two. You know how we love a good track two over here at Discord and Rhyme. And this is one of the rare, almost unique Joni Mitchell songs in which the kind of song she felt like writing coincided with what the radio listening public wanted to hear. And it ended up being her only top 10 hit on the Hot 100. Help Me peaked at number seven in June of 1974. The songs above it were in ascending order. Billy Don't Be a Hero by Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods. What? Sundown by Gordon Lightfoot. Dancing Machine by the Jackson 5. Yeah! You make Me Feel Brand New by the Stylistics. The Streak by Ray Stevens. <laughs> and at number one, Band on the Run by Paul McCartney and Wings. Awesome. That was mostly a pretty good week. This song is exploring a theme that she goes back to a lot, the inner conflict between wanting to be in a relationship and wanting to preserve her autonomy. That is a tough line to walk for just about anybody, and she seems to have struggled with it more than most. But fortunately for us, she writes about it better than just about anybody else ever has. However, for as excellent as the lyrics are, and they are typically amazing, I really want to highlight Joni's vocal performance here. Because she is rightly held up as one of the best songwriters of our time. And more recently, she's being recognized as an extremely innovative and creative guitarist. But I don't know if I've heard much praise specifically for her singing ability. And I don't know, maybe I'm just not looking in the right places. But her voice in this song especially is phenomenal. 
it it's flexible and athletic and powerful and sweet and very very expressive and she navigates this enormous melody with enviable ease i am a terrible singer and i can't keep up with this melody at all it is just way too big but that doesn't stop me from trying <laughs> my very favorite part is in the last verse help me she articulates the phrase, are you going to let me go there by myself with each syllable isolated from the ones around it is utterly perfect. And the melody there matches exactly what that question would sound like if it were spoken in a surprise, you know, in a surprised high pitched tone moving upward at the end. Are you going to let me go there by myself? And then the final repetition of the lines, we love our loving, but not like we love our freedom. Listen to how the song soars on the word freedom, showing us which of those two things she really values more. This is an absolute masterpiece of a pop song, and I'm so happy it was as big of a hit as it was. I have just barely scratched the surface of this amazing song. So I highly recommend listening to the podcast Strong Songs. Yes. Which recently dedicated a whole episode to help me. I mean, he spent something like 45 minutes analyzing why this song is so great. Really digs into everything, all the various layers of it. It's an excellent listen. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's so good. Yeah, that's a great episode. I'm like, I'm not a guitar player, but like the way he breaks down, like exactly how Joni Mitchell's like strange tunings actually manifest in the music is really great. He's he's a good educator. Extremely. Also, Amanda, I want to know what you think of the sax on this song. Does is this an acceptable sax song? (laughs) It is actually. I like all of the saxophones on this album, and it's because. Everything I you know what? I am a dummy. I didn't look up who the producer was on Court and Spark, but this is extremely well produced and well mixed. I think it's it's Joni Mitchell. Yeah. Is did she produce it herself? Yeah, I mean she didn't do all surprised. of the engineering, but she's the producer, yeah. That's awesome. This is a god tier album on a production level. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the saxophones are are blended so nicely that they don't that's my problem with saxophones is they're often so prominent they just overshadow they overpower everything else mm-hmm. but here they're they're part of the ensemble they have a purpose they're doing their job and supporting the song rather than the song being an excuse for a loud obnoxious saxophone well we were talking about like Joni Mitchell being like a painter before she was a musician and when the saxophone shows up in the song like it, it gives me like a really vivid picture of like a I don't know it's like a brush smear like going across the canvas it, with mm. really really beautiful colors so there's some synesthesia corner for you <laughs> oh What do you think of this great song? It's a great song. 
It is, it is brilliantly cool. catchy. Cool. It's instantly lovable. It's not to say I won't have things to say about it, but uh, it is a great song. Um, it's, it's romantic and wistful and clever. I do want to talk about the arrangement, though, because I just I don't hear what you all hear, although I respect what you all hear. I think a lot of the arrangements on this album are so light that they're barely there. I just really? I have a bias with Joni, I guess. I gravitate towards like when she's playing the heavy acoustic strumming kind of on blue or whatever's happening on Hijira, which I'll talk about more later. Um it's I call it space jazz. Most of the playing on Court and Spark is in some middle ground that just doesn't affect me nearly as much. There's a lot of like nice individual touches, but overall it sounds gauzy to me, almost like soft rock. The drums open up with this ear-catching drum roll, and then they just kind of disappear for the rest of the song. You hear enough to know that the drummer can play, but he's just mixed so low. Um, and I, another one of my biases in music is just I like louder drums for what that's worth. I make the same distinction with the music of Joni's pal and contemporary and apparently haunting track-marked sexual memory from her past, James Taylor. Um <laughs> When it's just James and an acoustic guitar, it's soft, but it's somehow still visceral. I'm thinking like Sweet Baby James or Fire and Rain. When it's James and a handful of studio instrumentalists who are all competing to be the least obtrusive one in the room and maybe some strings on top, there's more there by definition, but there's somehow also a lot less. Court and Spark isn't as gloppy as the softest James Taylor music, but it still sounds like everyone is just trying so hard to not be there. And so it's hard for me to get much from it. Wow. The greatest trick Joni Mitchell ever pulled was convincing Ben she was soft rock. (laughs) (laughs) That is really interesting, Ben, because I I hear this as being deceptively gauzy. Like she wants you to think that's what it is, but it's really very, very weighty. Maybe I'm missing the the eight dimensional chess, or she she's just schooling me in eight dimensional no, I, I mean, chess. I mean, I mean, I hear I hear what you're saying. Like this isn't like a I, I don't know in in terms of like because she she hired a jazz band for this album, like the yes. L.A. Express, yeah. and 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 one thing I noticed about it is that like at no point on the album do any of the members like really make much of an effort to like stand out above the other members. And that includes Joni Mitchell. And I, I, I think that that's like, I personally think that that's, that hugely benefits the sound of the album, but I could see it like, I don't know, kind of collapsing into a mush if you're listening to it from a certain perspective. Mm-hmm. Maybe I need to hear it on vinyl, you know, per what Amanda was saying. I mean, sometimes that, that might make a, a small difference. shift like that can make it the whole thing sound different. And I just, yeah. before I, I just want to kind of circle back, I've talked about the sound of the song and the album, but I do want to circle back and say, help me is a great, great song. I'm not here to say anything bad about the composition. It's, it is one of my favorites on the album. Awesome. And I, and I just, I want to make it clear. Like I, I'm not necessarily saying that you're wrong. You know? <laughs> Your opinion is obviously completely valid. It's just surprising to me, but I also really enjoy it. This happens. You and I do this a lot, Ben, how we hear the same song entirely differently from each other. Yeah. Well, Ben, as a one time New Yorker, I actually that uh, you being a one time New Yorker, I, I have a comparison here that might uh, that you might relate to. So help me kind of reminds me structurally of Central Park. 
And let me explain that. I don't. I don't mean that. It, I don't mean it evokes the atmosphere of Central Park. Like this is a quintessential Southern California song. Like don't get me wrong. What I mean is that there's like no one way to walk through Central Park. It was. It was designed as like an interlocking series Ooh. of like these rolling pathways and landmarks. Like you mm. can go from one end to the other, mm-hmm. literally hundreds of times, and never have the same experience. But. At the same time, you're like never thinking, wow, what an intricately designed park. You're just thinking, wow, this park is really nice. And that's what <laughs> listening to Help Me is like for me. Like it, it, it has like all of these like shifting layers that it, it's mm. never the same song for me. Everything is constantly in flux. But like, you know, on its face, it's still catchy enough that Joni managed to crack the top 10 with it. Like, so that's what I think. Help Me is Central Park QED. I really like I that. Love it. It's I never thought about that with Central Park. I, I just thought of it in terms of like. I'm on 80th Street on the east side and I'm trying to get to 80th Street on the west side and it's impossible. Um, I end up on like 65th Street or 100th Street. But I guess that was how it was designed. I never considered that. You're, you're right. I wasn't thinking about it as like somebody who lived in New York and is <laughs> jaded about New York. I've only been there as a tourist. Uh, as for me, uh, I love this song. It, it, it's a little fascinating to me that this of all songs was her biggest hit. I, I I have to admit I don't entirely understand you know the, the 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 fickleness of the charts but whatever it's it's fantastic. Um, the thing that really strikes me is it feels at its core like a song that could have belonged in any era with Joni because at its core it's you know it's it's about a theme that she she really likes to explore. It's about uh, feeling enthusiasm and caution at the same time as she goes into yet another love affair. And, you know, in a different form, you know, this could have existed, for instance, on Ladies of the Canyon in a much more spare arrangement. But instead you have the electric guitar, the woodwinds, you have all the horns and so, so, so many Jonies coming in. And it's, it's, it's just a different angle to approach uh, the types of songs that she can make. And this is part of her, her general theme of, constantly wanting to expand and to, to develop and grow, um, you know, ev- you know, eventually like this was starts somewhat backfire on her, but I don't think it was backfiring yet by a long shot. So yeah, this is, this is a fantastic song. It's, as you said, it's a great track too. And, and yet it's like my fourth favorite on the album. Cause I really like a lot of this album. <laughs> yeah. And if the nine inch Nails song were here, it would be your fifth favorite on the album. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We've got nothing else here. Let's move on to track three. This is a biggie. This is Free Man in Paris. to decide You know I go back there tomorrow But for the work I've taken on Stoking the star maker machinery Behind the popular song 
Free Man in Paris is my favorite Joni Mitchell song. Defensible. And it is the kind of song that only she could have written. It's catchy and melodic and so fun, but it's also extremely complex, both musically and lyrically. The free man in question is David Geffen, who I mentioned earlier. He was the head of Asylum Records at the time, which was Joni's label, and was a major bigwig in the music and movie industries for a long time. Although nowadays, I think he's best known for that time at the beginning of COVID lockdown when he posted that picture of on Instagram of his giant luxury yacht docked in the Grenadines and reminded everybody to stay safe and isolated. Because <laughs> he's, he's a real man of the people, that David Geffen. There's a PBS documentary called Inventing David Geffen that came out in 2012, and I recommend watching it. He's a he's a very interesting and complicated person and kind of a gigantic ass, (laughs) 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 but in ways that are often more sympathetic than you might think. It was a good movie. Watch, watch it. What was the world like before they invented David Geffen? I don't want to know. No, we don't want to live in that world. Anyhow, he and Joni went on a vacation to Paris sometime in the early 70s with Robbie Robertson of the band and his wife, Dominique. And that is the inspiration for the song. As I mentioned before, David and Joni had their professional disagreements, but they were good friends. And this is a deeply sympathetic set of lyrics about being able to finally relax and not worry about your very, very high pressure career. The instrumental arrangement to go with those lyrics is downright genius. This might be her catchiest song for my money. It, it grabs your attention right away with that ascending flute phrase and quickly settles into a pretty excellent groove with a great descending guitar hook that's played by Jose Feliciano. Wow. Yeah, who is responsible for the Christmas song that I hate the most in all the world. <laughs> so that's Feliz Navidad for any of, the, any of you who might not know. And so he kind of redeemed himself here playing on my favorite Joni Mitchell song. Even though Free Man in Paris has another huge and complicated melody, it's also gorgeous and totally singable. Even if you're like me and you can't really hit all those notes, but you try your best mm-hmm. anyway because it is irresistible. There is one little trick in the arrangement that I especially appreciate. In the first chorus, the rhythm of the phrase, but for the work I've taken on, is a big departure from the lines around it. It's very jerky, intense, and precise. But by the second chorus, it's relaxed into the surrounding rhythm so that it matches up. You know I go back there tomorrow, but for the work I've taken on, stuck in the star maker machinery behind the popular zone. So the the cure for massive work stress is to wander through Parisian cafes, (laughs) which seems accurate. I recommend it. I've never done that. I've never been to Paris, but this all tracks. Free Man in Paris was released as a single, and it actually turned out to be one of her bigger hits. It peaked at number 22 in September 1974. Also in the top 20 were open parentheses, your close parentheses, having my baby (laughs) by Paul Anka. (laughs) Clap for the Wolfman by the Guess Who. I actually didn't know that was the Guess Who. I know the song, but I didn't know that was them. I didn't either. I Honestly Love You by Olivia Newton-John. And at number one, Rock Me Gently by Andy Kim. Oh, the 70s. (laughs) And finally, this is where I learned how to pronounce Champs-Élysées. 
which is a very famous street in Paris that I had read about before, but I didn't know how to say because French pronunciation is completely insane unless she is incorrect. And this is another situation like when the police got us all saying Nabokov wrong. <laughs> is that, yes. did they Nabokov. get that wrong? Oh. Nabokov. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's more like Nabokov, which is probably also incorrect, but that's closer. Closer to it's close enough. Correct. Which I just learned a couple of years ago. So this is not me being all snobby because I didn't know it for a long time. <laughs> I took Sting at his word. This this is a little disillusioning. <laughs> Why would Sting deceive us? We've got no reason to distrust him. <laughs> Rich, what do you think? Well, I love this song, but so so a, a totally unfair bias that I have to get over when I listen to it is that I have kind of an anti-capitalist streak and I, mm. I hate learning about the lives of corporate executives. I hate it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, and, and and I, I 100% believe what Amanda said about how David Geffen is, is a really interesting person. It's just something like instinctive in me from like growing up in the last, you know, four decades of the corporate hellscape that has become America. And I just, I just, fair. I just don't want to learn that like a rich guy flew off to Paris and had a good time. It's just not information I want. <laughs> in my head <laughs> but that's a really stupid personal quibble this is still one of the best songs on the album total a plus Joni mitchell classic no notes other than make it not about a rich guy <laughs> <laughs> see I, I i hear it a little bit differently like not just as a rich guy bragging i see it as a glimpse of humanity poking through in the rich guy who's longing for a time where he could think about music and not have to think about it in terms of profits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. About I mean, he's a re he's a real person with an inner life. I'm just being completely and utterly unfair here. I acknowledge that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and that's fair. He, he, he can buy something to, to calm his, his, his wounded ego. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I agree with everything Amanda said about this on it's, it's fantastic. I, I really like the lyrics, the, but the arrangement is just what really, really gets me. And the thing is, w when I really got into this song, like the first thing that grabbed me was just that the guitars sound so fantastic. Like it's it's just really, really just a very, very pleasing sound to me. It's it's a there's a lot of uh, nice atmospheric bits uh, just in the way that the the sound wi winds its way through the track. But I've also come to just kind of realize this is, for me, one of the best arrangements of woodwinds I've I, that I can think of. It's so and good, yeah. Like yeah. not just like in in the notes, but just like the way that it's mixed, and 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 something that I that really helped drive this home to me was actually when I got a sense of what a narrow tight rope she was walking with this and to to, to help uh illustrate this uh i have a clip uh, from a live album that uh she released a few years later called uh, shadows and light it's from 1980 uh when her her sound had gotten a little more let's say bloated Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> he chose just the clip that Amanda would hate. <laughs> oh, this hurts. Yes, yeah, this is that's a good example of like why I like the 
balance of instruments on yes. Cord and Spark as it was recorded. Yes. Like that's what it would sound like if any of them were showboating. Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, remember what I said about the saxophones blending in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was not that. <laughs> yeah, th- this could have gone wrong and that I, I I don't hate that live album. It's fine, but th- that's kind of a mangled version to me. So Ben, what do you think of Free Men in Paris? I love this one too. I mean, this is this these two songs are a one-two punch. Mm-hmm. The song's got energy and a lovely melody and clever evocative lyrics. She does such a great job harmonizing with herself. Each Joni in the mix communicates something different but important about the lyrics when she's singing. I like the lyrical mixture here. She's got empathy for David Geffen. She gets him. She understands how he feels. But she also throws in a slight jab at him at his job, you know, stoking the star making machinery behind the popular songs. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a level where artists understand that those suits work hard on something and their friends. But there's another level where artists wonder how necessary those suits really are for the creation of art. I think more than anything, I just appreciate the catchy chorus. I'm, I'm a sucker for those. This song sticks with me. And so it, it rightly became one of her most popular songs. I love this one. I, I, I like that, Ben, because, you know, for all that I was complaining about, like learning about the corporate executive, I mean, he was her friend and she was, you know, she's needling him here. She's, yeah. She's, she's, she's having yeah. a laugh at his expense. Yeah. Yeah. But she also, another really good reference to his humanity is she makes sure to point out that the choices he's making affect people's lives. You know, ideal and dreamers and no one's future to decide, you know, that's those are very weighty decisions to be making. And I can see how that would that would get to you and you'd need to get away from it. That is part of her lyrical genius that she can write such a loving and sympathetic song about one of the richest men in the world's history. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, before we before we move on, a comparison point that that just came to me as we were sitting here is um, thinking of the song uh, "Power Man" by the Kinks, uh, which is also about, uh, in this case, kind of a, a fictional uh, record executive. But the thing is, Joni doesn't make Deffen sound like a clown; like she makes right. him into a real person, as opposed to just yeah. this abstract force that's to be fought. And I think that that's there's a lot to be said for that here. Yeah. Like, hey, there is a person inside this suit. Exactly. All right. If we're done here, let's move on to track four. This is called People's Parties. style they've got stamps of many countries they've got passport smiles some are friendly some are cutting some are watching it from the wings some are standing in the center given to get something photo beauty gets attention and her eye paints running down she's got a rose in her teeth and a lampshade crown one minute she's so happy, then she's crying on someone's knee, saying, laughing and crying, you know it's the same release. I told you and I read you I was crazy. Cry for us all. 
daddy in the corner thinking he's nobody And Jack behind his joker and Stone Cold Grace behind her fan And me and my frightened silence thinking I don't understand This is only two minutes and 15 seconds long And yet it is one of the really heavy hitters on Court and Spark The arrangement is so simple on the surface It's mostly Joni and her guitar with a few little elements in the background to fill it out But you notice right away that the guitar tuning is completely bonkers. As we discussed in the Blue episode, she had polio as a child and lost some mobility in her hands. So she had trouble managing the more complex chords on the guitar. So because she is a genius, she turned that bug into a feature and worked out these very strange tunings to compensate for that. So instead of the usual technique of tuning each guitar string to the notes E, A, D, G, B, and then E again, for this song, they're set to D, A, D, F sharp, A, and D. This particular tuning is one that she used fairly frequently, including on Freeman in Paris, but I love how obvious it is here because that acoustic guitar is enormous and you really notice how unusual it sounds. And by the way, if you want to play the guitar like Joni Mitchell, you have got your work cut out for you. On JoniMitchell.com, which is a vast sea of fascinating information, honestly, it's the best musician website I've ever seen in my life. It's more like a museum. Here, here. There is a whole article with just tips for playing the guitar like Joni, and it is very complicated. Because guitar strings are not designed to be tuned to those particular pitches. It's tricky to play them without immediately throwing the whole thing right out of tune because they're at a tension that they weren't designed for. And I don't actually play the guitar, but those of you who do, if you have tried these Joni tunings, I would love to hear how that went for you because it sounds like such a fascinating process. So write to discordpod at gmail.com. Tell me your stories about trying to play Joni Mitchell songs. So anyhow, back to people's parties. Lyrically, this is a really interesting contrast to her earlier song, California, when she sang about going to a party down a red dirt road in Spain, because by this point in her life, she was going to an entirely different brand of party with the likes of Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson, and evidently was having a little bit of trouble adjusting as anyone would. So even if we've never been to fancy pants LA parties, I think we've all had the experience of being in a large group and feeling very out of place and nervous. And the lyrics are full of fantastic images, including uh, the girl with a rose in her teeth and a lampshade crown. One minute she's so happy, then she's crying on someone's knee, saying, laughing and crying, you know it's the same release. That is an excellent description of someone who is very keyed up and confused and possibly also on a whole bunch of cocaine. (laughs) She wraps up the song by wishing she had more of a sense of humor and was able to laugh it all away. And the way she sings that line is just stunning. Her voice drops all the way down to the bottom of her range. So it sounds the opposite of jolly. She's dubbed her own backing vocals, repeating that phrase in a very quick, high-pitched tone that sounds like mocking laughter. It's amazing. And then it transitions into the next track so smoothly that you might not even notice it's a new song playing, but we'll get to that in a little bit. You know, a few years ago, I, I heard a phrase that's it's kind of stuck with me and haunted me. I'm not really sure what to do with it. But the, the, the thing I heard someone say is that 
most of the time when you meet someone or when you talk to somebody, you're not actually talking to them. You're talking to their PR representative. <laughs> huh. And I I think of that when I hear this song because I think of a room where everybody is purposely masking themselves from everybody else because they're terrified of what people will think if 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 they let themselves be vulnerable for even even a second even though on a certain level like probably most of the people there you know their lives would improve if if they would all just simultaneously agree to drop the masks also just as someone who's who generally gets extremely anxious at parties uh you know what once i gave this this song a good enough listen to to really key in on what it's about it resonated with me immediately but yeah this I absolutely love this song. I love how light and effortless it is um, in in the song while while just hitting on a really really heavy and serious topic that affects everybody. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this one really does feel like being like the quiet person at the edge of a party, which I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure is a situation that all four of us here must be familiar with. Like we're all introverts here. Yep. I know you guys. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That like these lyrics read to me like an anxious person's racing thoughts, like sizing up everyone in the room, like trying to form a silent bond with the other quiet people at the party. And then, yeah. but, you know, it, it obviously it ultimately lands on a spiral of self-criticism and self-loathing. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's really yeah. fun being an anxious person. And I realize that we I are project- so fun at parties. You guys. <laughs> <laughs> Our parties are awesome. Our parties yeah. are so fun. <laughs> so much karaoke. Yeah. And, and I realized that everything I just said there was like projecting more than a little bit but that's part of what makes art resonate with people and for the record I'm not trying to paint like Joni Mitchell as like this like shy demure wallflower sort of person like from from everything I've read about her she could be very very confrontational and in your face Mm -hmm. people are complicated yeah yeah but she was capable of understanding what somebody like that could be yeah exactly and and that's that's part of her greatness is her ability to not just project her own feelings but to properly imagine what it would be like for other people yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 you know, this the song is autobiographical in a sense, but it's also universal. Yes. Ben, what do you think? She sings beautifully here. I, I want to start with that, and I never want to take it for granted, whatever I think of whatever song. I never want to be like, oh, of course, Joni Mitchell gives a world-class vocal performance here. Duh, she does that every time because it's stunning every time. And those rounds at the end of the song that Amanda talked about, they're just so clever and, and beautiful. I wish this one was more of a song. It's another one of those that I never remember after it's on. And that doesn't mean that it's a crime that, you know, just because I can't whistle the melody when the record isn't playing, that it's not good. But it also means that I'm not going to remember the song itself or reflect on it because it hasn't stuck with me. Lyrically, it probably deserves a lot better than that. But it just, at least for me, if the music doesn't stick with me, then I don't really notice what the lyrics are um so they're they're probably amazing on this song but i just i'm never that aware of them i'll keep listening to this one because i i want to like it more and and hopefully i will the more i hear it i have trouble remembering a lot of this album too but i i guess for me that's just an excuse to listen to it again because i i personally always have a really good time with these songs Mm -hmm. even if they have like you know that that rambling kind of Joni mitchell way about a melody Mm -hmm. i like that yeah i'm a i'm a little surprised that you say that, Ben, because when you were talking earlier about how the arrangement on Help Me felt a little like maybe too much and not enough at the same time, 
I thought, oh, I wonder if he'll like people's parties better because it's so stripped back. I like the arrangement more. That's a good point. But just yeah. the, the song, it's it's like halfway there for me. It's it's just not, mm. it doesn't stick with me. I do like the arrangement more. Mm, sure. I mean, you're totally wrong and bad <laughs> yeah. and you should feel terrible about yourself, but sure. <laughs> All right. If we're done here, let's move on to the next track, which comes right out of people's parties. This is called Same Situation. mentioned at the end of uh, people's parties there, these songs just flow right into each other. So it almost sounds like same situation is her, her inner monologue as she stands at the edge of the party trying to figure out what she's doing there. And I like that a lot. And same situation has just so much to dig into. While the melody and arrangement are very interesting and pleasant, this is a song where you really need to pay attention to the lyrics. At the most superficial level, it's another contemplation of a complicated romantic relationship, you know, being hesitant about committing to somebody and doubting that person's sincerity. But there are so many other complicating factors to this, which you realize when Joni sings what might be the most jaw-dropping line in her entire body of work, which is saying a lot. So I sent up my prayer wondering where it had to go with heaven full of astronauts and the Lord on death row. There are probably hundreds of ways to interpret that line, but I read it as a very sharp commentary on the gradual cultural replacement of God with science and how that left a lot of people feeling empty and lost And then she sings the millions of his lost and lonely ones call out and clamor to be found. That is a lovely reference to the biblical parable of the lost sheep in which a shepherd leaves 99 sheep behind to go and find the one that got lost. What I think she's saying is that the cultural devaluation of God ended up leaving behind a lot of people who wanted to be found. And by extension, this thought applies to all of the massive cultural shifts that were going on 
in the 60s and 70s. Society was changing very rapidly then, and it is again now. And it was and is confusing and hard to keep up with. The old mores and traditions were being swept away, but it wasn't yet clear what would replace them. So that commentary on religion is followed immediately by the line caught in the struggle for higher position and the search for love that sticks around. She repeats that later in the song in a more personal version as my struggle for higher achievements and my search for love that don't seem to cease. That is a really interesting and bold statement to make in the context of second wave feminism, because a lot of the popular messaging to women in the 70s was along the lines of a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. You know, the notion that you don't need a man in order to be complete and fulfilled. You can pursue a career or art or whatever you want and be a whole person on your own, which, of course, is a perfectly valid message. But Johnny's over here saying, well, sure, men are a lot of trouble, but. I want one. <laughs> you know, she's just she's not, just not sure how to balance that with her own ambitions. Later on, we hear what her actual prayer was, which is send me somebody who's strong and somewhat sincere. I love that. And as is so often the case, it's not entirely clear what she means by it. Like, does she really not want total honesty? Is it like in Interstellar when Matthew McConaughey turns the robot thing's honesty setting down to 80%? (laughs) Or is she just lowering her standards? Like, can I please have a boyfriend who's at least a little bit not an ass? Or it could be both. You know, what I'm saying here is that Joni Mitchell is very, very good with words and the song is stunning. Ben, what do you think of it? I love that lyrical analysis. I mean, I I think... Because of the music, as with a lot of songs on the album, because the music doesn't stick with me as much, I don't notice the lyrics as much. So I wish I had noticed all of those. I will keep trying to notice all of those because I really like your take on on those different lines. Yeah, I mean, this is just one of the songs that's just kind of flown by me. It's I never remember that there's a song called The Same Situation on Court and Spark. So I, I couldn't tell you that much about it. Like I said, I'll keep listening and again, I don't want to take for granted just how beautifully she sings it. Yeah. But that's all I have on this one. Well, to go back to the lyrics. Well, first off, I really liked your your whole take on the lyrics, Amanda. It really like opened up the song for me. Hmm. But w- w- one thing I wanted to say about Joni as a lyricist is that I, I feel like she has like kind of a reputation of being elusive and difficult to crack. But she really honestly gives you a lot to work with. Like the, the yeah. lyrics, the lyrics here are fairly straightforward sentiments with like identifiable, relatable themes that Amanda just went through. She, Joni just never comes right out and like gives you like the central thesis that unlocks yeah. all of it. She, she has enough faith in the listener to like, you know, put the list to put the missing pieces together. And uh, one thing Amanda said earlier is that like one of the main themes on this album is like the, the conflict between like love and freedom and uh, whoever wrote up the, uh, the commentary for this album on Joni Mitchell's website also said the same thing. And on on this song, I love the way that Joni like threads the needle between like love versus freedom and like the search for God and whether, you know, any of this is even possible or if we're just, you know, trapped by our stupid mammal brains. (laughs) It's there's just so much going on in these lyrics. I love it. You know, Ben, I it's interesting hearing you you say what you do about the lyrics because, or about about the music and how it doesn't strike you because that was honestly you know from what I alluded to in my initial description of things like that was actually you know largely my experience with Joni for a long time. I'm not going to condemn it. Um, it it is a thing where on on a certain level you have to make 
the make the leap of faith that there is something beyond there because there there you know sometimes you know when when you listen to something over and over again you can sort of Stockholm syndrome your your way into <laughs> to, to finding everything that's there but I don't think that that's what's <laughs> happening here I think the thing about uh, Joni and and very much on this album is you know there, there's the the bright attractive surface but again like she's she's it's one it's an album that rewards you know the initial casual listen but it's also one that you can keep just digging and digging and digging and digging and finding more and more and more and part of what i made me end up loving this album so much was the fact that you know once i started you know hammering at it once i started peeling it i just kept thinking, okay, well, this is next lesson is going to be the one where I start to run out of things. And then I didn't, and it just kept going. It's like, wow, there's more and there's more and there's more. And, you know, thinking with what Amanda said about the, uh, you know, about how this, this song touches on her, her conflicted feelings about what she's looking for in, or, or how she, she wants the connection, uh, with a man, but she also understands, uh, you know, that, that that there's cost to that. You know, this is a theme that comes up over and over again in her career from the very beginning. Like I think of the song, uh, The Cactus Tree uh, from her debut, that mines a lot of this same thematic ground. Um, and it's one that, again, comes up a lot. Uh, with the the really great iconic line that, uh, that Amanda cited about uh, uh, setting up the prayer, there, there's actually a, a very specific pop culture reference um, that's really, uh, really attached itself uh, in my in my brain to this line. Uh, so, I'm an enormous fan of the HBO Watchmen uh, miniseries that came out a few oh, years ago. It's so good. It's it's really great. Like I I, I like the original uh, graphic novel. Um, I didn't like it enough to expect how much I would like the HBO miniseries. But one of the things that that I remember that really, really stuck with me about it early on that and helped make me realize, oh, I'm going to absolutely adore this, not just kind of like it. Um, so just to set some things up, so one of the the primary characters uh, of the Watchmen universe is, is a character named Dr. Manhattan. He, um, you know, he, he became essentially a sort of godlike figure uh, through an accident. And after the events of the original Watchmen, he he left Earth through various circumstances from the original. Uh, people, uh, by and large, you know, started to just let go of the notion of God, and this just stopped being a part of of what people uh, made part of their lives because there were reasons for them to think, yeah, this this isn't a thing. But w- one of the things that we see in one of the episodes is that. Uh, People have found a way to be able to exploit people's need for a connection uh, with something greater than them. And so there are these pot, these listening or sorry, the, the, these broadcast pods where people can go in and basically like tell their troubles to Dr. Manhattan. They're, they, <laughs> they, they speak into this thing and then like signals are beamed to Mars where they think he is. Spoiler, he is not there. And just this idea of, of of people going into this thing, just like they they need to talk to somebody, even if they don't believe in God. Like, and they're literally like setting their prayers into space now. And it also turns out that their their prayers are not going where they expect. And there's there's a whole lot associated with that. But I just think, but but when I think of of 
of, of prayers going into space. That's what I think of. And it's a really, really poignant image to me. And it, it's, Interesting. it's one that I, 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 I like with the song, the song amplifies my like of that image. It, it's, it's, it's all very, very fun, kind of depressing, poignant party in my brain. <laughs> so yeah, as for the as for the as for the music, um, I agree. It's this is one that is more lyrics and performance than melody per se. But mm-hmm. I think the lyrics are great. I think the performance is great. I think the arrangement is really good, and that's enough for me. Hmm. Nice. I, I think ab- about her accessibility. I'm starting to think maybe I was poorly served by hearing Blue first, because Could be. now I'm like, you know, why is catchy songwriter Joni Mitchell not writing catchy songs? As opposed to if I had heard her debut first, you know, maybe I would think, hey, cool, you know, just esoteric out there songwriter Joni Mitchell threw us a bone for one album and got really poppy. But that's not what I'm looking for from her. Maybe it's like starting George Harrison's solo discography with All Things Must Pass. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Which you maybe shouldn't do because the rest of it doesn't live up to that. Yeah. This is a more accessible album to me than Blue personally, but I guess that just kind of speaks to like the different paths we take to within the music world. That's interesting though. I actually agree. There's just more to grab onto with Court and Spark, which is not to say that I dislike Blue or that I find it inaccessible. It's just Court and Spark is more immediately appealing to me. They're, They're different in what they provide. Which again Definitely. speaks to Joni as somebody who can provide a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And with that, we're going to flip to side two. <laughs> this is called Car on a Hill. I've been sitting up waiting for my sugar to show. I've been listening to the sirens and the radios. Said it be over three. Speaking of George Harrison, this is Joni Mitchell's Blue Jay Way. Only I think Car on a Hill is a much better song than Blue Jay Way. Yes. Nothing is better than Blue Jay Way. (laughs) Everything is better than Blue Jay Way. (laughs) They're both about sitting up in L.A. waiting for somebody to show up at your house but the Beatles song is dull and sleepy and Car on a Hill is tense and anxious. Blue Jay Way is about being very tired but forcing yourself to stay awake until your friends arrive. Please don't be long. Please don't is about being terribly worried about what kind of calamity might have happened and then you mentally get on the disaster train and ride it all the way to the end of the line. And although I can relate to both of these situations, Joni's version hits me a lot harder. The instrumental arrangement and performance, as with many of the songs on Court and Spark, is what really makes the song. And here is where I had better talk about who is doing that performing. 
Back when Joni was first starting to record Court and Spark, she had hired regular session drummer Russ Kunkel to work with her. And he's one of those session players where even if you don't recognize his name, you have definitely heard his playing. He's worked with everyone and their brother. He's a very good rock drummer, but Joni kept asking for all kinds of little fills and flourishes that just weren't his style. So finally he said, okay, what you need is a jazz drummer. So they went out listening to various jazz ensembles to find a backing band for the album, and they settled on a jazz fusion group called the L.A. Express. Their woodwind player, Tom Scott, had played on For the Roses, so it seemed to make sense. And they turned out to be a fantastic choice for these songs. Uh, The drummer for the band was John Guerin, who uh, dated Joni Mitchell for a few years off and on. And according to him... Uh, Joni sort of fell backwards into making her songs sound jazzy. It was just where her songwriting instinct was leading her. And that jazz musicians turned out to be the best people who could execute that vision. And then she just leaned into it. So for Car on a Hill, she told the band, make the music sound like cars in traffic. And damn if they didn't do exactly that. The saxophones sound like car horns. The rhythm section sounds like wheels whipping down the road. And then there's this part where saxophones, guitars, and several Joni Mitchells combine to make a siren. there for a minute that's where the anxiety in the song hits its peak and then it settles back down to its baseline level of intense worrying incidentally a long time ago producer mike remarked that he especially likes this one because it's the Joni mitchell song that sounds the most like a steely dan song and he was he was right about that well i I know for a fact that larry carlton who plays guitar on this was on asia and he played on the song the song kid charlemagne like there are really there is steely dan history with this band I've been trying to avoid too much speculation on who specifically each of these songs is about, because for the most part, it's not necessary. But I'll go ahead and tell you this one's about Jackson Brown. As I said before, they dated for a little while around this time until Jackson met a woman named Phyllis Major and essentially ghosted Joni. He later married Phyllis. And this song is about a specific evening when he said he would come over and then just never showed up. He was running on empty somewhere. (laughs) it was right there (laughs) excellent reportedly he's never confirmed this but uh it is rumored that his song about Joni is fountain of sorrow which is a lovely song now as we've discussed Joni was a big believer in using her personal life as inspiration for her music and she encouraged others to do the same she was friends with russ kunkel's wife leah who was also a songwriter and when leah told Joni that she thought russ was cheating on her Joni's response was, well, at least you can use it for material. (laughs) And this is far from unusual, of course. I mean, these days, whenever I hear people getting all riled up over Taylor Swift writing songs about her exes, I think you guys know about Joni Mitchell, right? (laughs) So, Taylor, just keep on making art to process your feelings as every single other artist in history has also done. You are in excellent company. (laughs) 
There was more that happened the evening that Jackson Brown didn't show up, but we'll get to that a little later on. For now, I'll just say that Car on a Hill is a, a deeply weird song, and she it's very ambitious. She set out to make a very specific atmosphere and succeeded just incredibly well. And this is actually the song on Court and Spark that gets stuck in my head the most often. I can see that. Rich, what do you think? Uh, this this three song stretch here is kind of the anxious introvert suite on this album. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like how many songs are there about like restlessly pacing through the house waiting for someone to come home? It's definitely an experience mm-hmm. that I've had, and I, I love how like L.A. and glamorous it all sounds. Like it feels very like you know wherever you go, there you are. Like y- you know your expensive John Lautner house with a view of the Hollywood sign. Just it, that's not going to save you from your nerves. You can never escape from that. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. dark. yeah again like i said a lot of projecting going on here but as for the song itself it has one of my favorite kinds of unusual song structures i think i've mentioned it a few times before which is like one big build followed by a second big build and then we're out like no bridge no like endlessly repeating chorus at the end just like two rising actions in a row and i I don't know if that kind of structure has like an analog in classical music john little help here (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was very helpful. It's a crescendo. Very, very helpful. Uh, I don't know. It's two crescendos. But the but the rock songs I always think of that do this are uh, Life on Mars by Bowie and of mm-hmm. course Alone by Heart, the greatest song ever written. <laughs> yeah. You know, I am a I am a chronic fretter. And uh so the this song speaks to me. Musically I love it just because it it starts from the the this this low key just simmer and then it just gets more and more anxious and more and more anxious and 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 I feel it I, I feel what she's going through as as the song goes along. When I talked about mentally getting on the disaster train, I was speaking from experience because you know I do that too. Like something occurs to me, like oh this specific thing must have gone disastrously wrong, and that is why my husband is fifteen minutes later than I expected <laughs> yep. him. And yeah. before I know it, I'm imagining all of the very worst scenarios, and it's it, it's hard to get off the disaster train yeah. Yeah. <laughs> once you've gotten on it. So, Ben, how do you feel about the disaster train? <laughs> I mean, car on a hill. I love this song. This is my favorite on the album. I, I don't even have a oh, coherent wow. thesis for why and what it does differently than the others. Um, I've liked what you all have had to say about it, um, about especially Rich, about the 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 different structure of the song. Um, Just that climbing the hill chorus, it just, it hits me more than most of the album does. And the whole Joni choir in that kind of alarm, the the siren section that you were talking about. Again, the more Joni's, the better. And I like how, you know, in that context, when she throws in the more laid back sections of the song, I like them more because they're kind of intertwined with heavier sections. But yeah, it's so evocative because of the music and the lyrics. I can picture her nervously waiting for someone to show up. I can picture me nervously waiting for someone to show up. And that means a song is working on me. So yeah, this, this is the one that I come back to the most on Chord and Spark. I love that. All right. So if we're all done here, let's move on to the next one. We're kind of curious to see what everyone thinks about it. Hmm. This one is called Down to You. Everything comes and goes Marked by lovers 
Later, you're not so choosy. When the closing lights strip off the shadows on this strange new flesh you found, clutching the night to you like a fig leaf, you hurry to the blackness and the blankets to lay down an impression and your loneliness. Every episode I host, there is one song on the album that just confounds me, and. Down to You is that song. It is just so weird. I mean, what the heck even is this? It's not pop. It's too elaborate for that. It's not folk. She left that sound behind years ago. It's not jazz. It's too normal. It's not classical, although she's looking in that direction. Honestly, it's almost prog. Ish. I'm, I swear I'm not saying that just to troll everybody, and I'm sorry, Ben. <laughs> But <laughs> you are saying it's a troll fan. Come on. A little bit. It's it's proggy in the style of Supertramp, where yep. there's the basic song and then a long instrumental passage, and then the song comes back. But the instrumental passage in Down to You is much more elaborate and orchestrated than anything Supertramp ever did. That instrumental passage is several minutes long and it's really gorgeous. And you know what's weird is it reminds me just a tiny bit of the Beach Boys song, Let's Go Away for a While, which is one of the instrumentals on Pet Sounds. I don't know whether that's at all significant, especially since Pet Sounds predates Court and Spark by a full eight years. 
the arrangement and production of Down to You is just very 70s. And I, I think we might be able to chalk that similarity up to the fact that the 70s in general were very, very influenced by what Brian Wilson was doing in the 60s. Also, the Beach Boys were prog. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Goodbye. If Smile isn't prog, then come on. I know. Famous prog epic. Fun, fun, fun. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and make this comparison. This is, I'm going to be spitballing a little bit for a minute here because I'd actually cut this because I thought I was crazy. But earlier, John, you mentioned Kate Bush. Mm. And I was thinking about her when I was trying to decide whether Down to You is Prague adjacent or not. Because this is something that Phil mentioned in the last episode of our defensive prog rock series that much like punk, prog is at least partly about attitude. And in that sense, like Kate, I, I'm not super duper familiar with Kate Bush and I don't really like her that much, mm. but she's often considered to be a part of the prog world. And I think in her case, that is largely about attitude. And I think that is where you could, that's how you could consider Joni Mitchell to be somewhat proggy from time to time. Joni Mitchell and Kate Bush don't actually sound very much alike at all, but in terms of pushing boundaries and writing the music that they wanted to write and be damned with the Hot 100, they have a lot in common. If that is what constitutes progressive rock, which I think you could make an argument for, I don't think I totally agree with that argument, but there's some truth in it, then, you know, that's just that's just something to think about. My favorite part of Down to You, oddly, is the last few seconds of it. After the last repetition of the title phrase, there's a wonderful interplay between piano, guitar, and I think a cello that is absolutely beautiful and somehow very moving. It all comes down to I love how the song ends. Down to You is clearly a masterpiece of popular music. It's beautiful. It's elaborate without being pretentious. It's exquisitely produced. But for some reason, I don't actually like it as much as I feel I should. And this is totally a me problem. <laughs> There's nothing at all wrong with the song. But for some reason... It ultimately feels a little hollow to me, like it's missing whatever emotional core is running through the rest of the album. I'm not really sure how to explain it better than that, but I honestly think this is a case where I might just have to wait a few more years and see how my relationship with the song develops. Ben, what do you think of Prague, Joni? <laughs> <laughs> I feel so much better now that, that when Amanda added that last bit, because... <laughs> this, I mean, it is a big centerpiece of the album. Obviously, it's elaborately arranged, and and hearing that clip again of the of the in instrumental section does remind me how beautiful that is. Joni sings it wonderfully, especially when she's harmonizing with herself. But I just don't hear much of a song here. And you know, Amanda, you were talking yeah. about how you know you don't know what genre it is. It's not this. It's not that. And my first thought is maybe because it's not much of a song. 
that that would fit into any mm. genre. I mean, if you're just kind of if you just kind of wrote some words and you're singing them, however, that might not fit into a genre, but that might not be a, a brilliant stroke either. It's a very pleasant record, but it just it doesn't hit me. So I feel better that that it doesn't hit you that yeah. much either. It's it's possible that it's a whole lot of style, and this is a very stylish song with maybe just not quite enough substance. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. John looks very upset. <laughs> John, <laughs> I'm waiting. No, I, uh, we'll, we'll get to. Me. I wrote. It's a okay. beautiful facade without a foundation. So so kind of oh, along wow. those same lines. Rich, what do you think? <laughs> it's terrible. No, I like this one. Uh, well, I, I guess first off, I have a question about this one. Do, do any of you know who did the strings on this song or, or on this album in general? Is it was because because there's no credit for it. Was it just like, do you know if it was like uh, unnamed, uncredited session musicians? Because I, I don't know. Arranged by Tom Scott. Okay. Yeah, I think that was a pretty common practice at the time. It was just something I was mm-hmm. curious about. But well, anyway, as for the song itself, like, uh, so apparently when Tom Scott proposed that the album express work with Joni Mitchell John Guerin's first thought was what am I doing backing a folk singer (laughs) and then he actually Mm -hmm. listened to her songs and he was completely awestruck and his response was she was the whole orchestra and one guitar and as Amanda said earlier there was a period when the LA Express had to like learn to adapt to her tendencies to like kind of like go across bars with her melodies and shift time signatures but Mm -hmm. ultimately it all made sense in the end and as you guys have articulated really well so far like down to you is the song where I kind of like the challenges of that whole dynamic, like, you know, come to the fore the most. Like I, I am never ever going to remember how this song goes because like moment to moment, we're just kind of following the music to wherever Joni Mitchell's muse led her. And like, you know, trying to fit the instrumental arrangement to the contours of her sense of melody and harmony must've been like an incredibly huge challenge. So Mm -hmm. I'm kind of with both of you. I like this one, but it's more of like an intellectual achievement than something that really hits me. You people are insane. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like it. All right. All right. Let, so here's what, here's what it should not surprise people. I, I think who have listened to this podcast that I am madly in love with this song. Um, it is neck and neck with free man in Paris. I, mm-hmm. I almost don't want to pick between them. I just want to say the free man in Paris is the, is the highlight and center of the first side and down to you is the highlight and center of the second side. What I don't understand is the the idea that there's no emotional core here to me this is just kind of a a a series of really devastating uh vignettes some shown in, in longer stretches than others but i think there's a lot of emotional potency here there's one line tucked in into the second verse the the line in the morning there are lovers in the street they look so high you brush against a stranger and you both apologize mm-hmm. just this contrast of of two people in in the throes of 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 passion of of of, be, of feeling connected and you know somebody else basically like two people coming in contact with each other who you know maybe if they stop to, to to want to connect with each other could find something to alleviate their loneliness but it said like they both feel ashamed of taking up space but that kind of is dwarfed by what comes in the verse before it of being in the bar and then stumbling home with somebody you know th- this to me ranks up uh what i think of when i i hear these i think of rick wright singing about a similar thing in summer 68 Oh, like just in terms of really, really nailing the the sense of, mm-hmm. well, I I did this to be able to, to to fill a need. Now what? 
Mm-hmm. And that's Rick Wright of Pink Floyd. That's right. Right. Yeah. yeah. This also touches on, on something um, that I, I wasn't really prepared for with Joni as, as a general thing before I really started to dig into her. And it kind of surprised me because I hadn't really seen this mentioned. And I, it almost seemed almost counter to kind of the impression that had uh, been presented to me of her is that Joni Mitchell is a very sexual songwriter, mm-hmm. but she's maybe she's on the, the, the short list of the most mature writers about sex I've ever encountered mm-hmm. because she's very, very open about it as a, as a central part of life, not just from a, from a physical need, but also uh, as a, a means of emotional connection with other people. And this comes up over and over in her music. But the thing is, a lot of times when somebody is classified as a sexual songwriter, and this, this happens more with men, but then it's often attached as, as a pejorative to women as being, uh, you know, something that's kind of gimmicky, something that they just uh, kind of use as a, as a tool to distract people from them not having talent. That's not the case with Joni. She's just very, very matter of fact about it. She's extremely yeah. mature. And... I think that this song really, really captures that um, in, in that particular verse. But again, like that's not the only set of emotions that's depicted in her. And I haven't even gotten to the music itself yet <laughs> because my goodness, like especially when you get into that middle uh, instrumental arrangement, like that to me is fairly close, like what my ideal combination of sounds is. I just love what this song grows into because the thing is, at the very beginning, like it sounds little bit like a fairly conventional piano ballad that could have started on blue but then like when it stops being that it goes all in it's something completely new completely different and she just piles on more and more stuff but this i don't think she loses the plot there's no tune Mm -hmm. per se because that's not what she's interested in doing this is a painting right and i love Joni the painter yeah. Like, again, she couldn't get away with this forever, but right now she could. And the fact that this painting, this sonic work of art is on what is ostensibly her was considered by some people at the time as her pop sellout album <laughs> is amazing to me. And I, I love it when you have uh, really, really artsy, polished sonic masterpieces that are in the middle of what are ostensibly pop albums. It's just a thing that I have a weakness for. It's like domino on invisible touch exactly <laughs> so i love i i love court and spark and down to you for me is an absolutely crucial part of why i rate this album so highly so i, I respectfully dissent <laughs> <laughs> that was very respectful and i don't disagree with anything you said i think you're right about those little vignettes but the way they're worded is a little more oblique than the rest of the album Sure. And so it feels more obscured than some of the rest of it. And like I said, this is one that I'm just going to have to sit with. I mean, I've fair. only known it for close to a decade. Give me <laughs> give me 20 more years and we'll we'll see what happens. But again, to give context, I'm the guy who likes Peter Hamill. That is true. So that means I can just disregard everything you just said. Exactly. <laughs> I would never. And with that, let's move on. The next track is called Just Like This Train. Behind the time 
Just like this train Shaking into town with the brakes complaining I used to count lovers like railroad cars I counted them on my side Lately I don't count on nothing I just let things The station master shuffling cars Boxcars are banging in the yards Jealous love will make you crazy If you can't find your goodness Cause you lost your heart Somatic just like this train has a lot in common with this flight tonight in that they're both about being on mass transit and having a lot of big feelings. This one is very observational, starting with external things, the train itself and the other people on it, and gradually moving inward and contemplating the nature of her relationship with the man she's thinking about. I don't know who it is, and I don't care that much. It doesn't really matter. To be honest, for me, this is probably the weakest link on the album. And that's not to say I don't like it because all the tracks on Court and Spark range from excellent to mind-blowing. This is just one that's merely excellent. However, later on, she switched it up quite a bit and made a solo electric guitar arrangement, which she performed on Letterman in 1996. We'll post that video in the show notes because it's well worth watching. You can really hear the strange tuning. And between that and her extremely light touch on the guitar, it sounds otherworldly. And then just a few months ago in July 2022, Joni Mitchell made a completely unexpected appearance at the Newport Folk Festival. And this was astonishing because back in 2015, she'd suffered a brain aneurysm that left her unable to speak or walk. And she keeps her private life very private these days, but she's evidently done some very intensive work on recovering because she looked and sounded fantastic at Newport. It was amazing. And one of the songs she played was just like this train with no vocals. It was just that wonderful electric guitar arrangement. Yeah. She said in an interview later that she relearned how to play the guitar by watching old videos of herself to see where she'd put her fingers when she was playing. And I I can't even express how marvelous and impressive that is. So I, I don't consider Just Like This Train to be all that impressive of a song by Joni Mitchell standards, but it evidently means a lot to her. And that is not nothing. Rich, what do you think? Well, I, I don't know if they intended the sequencing this way, but the middle of Court and Spark has sort of like a, a late at night passage of time effect on me. 
Like it's mm. it's it's kind of the opposite of Days of Future Past in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> like you've got Car on the Hill, which is you know going out of your mind as the sun is setting, and then Down to You, which uh, I didn't mention this, but it has kind of like a two a.m. like long dark night of the soul kind of vibe for me. Yeah. And then this song feels like the sun coming back up after you've been awake all night. Oh, I like that. Yeah, this honestly low key might be one of my favorites on the album. Like I can see why Joni Mitchell like keeps like keeps on dragging it back out. Uh, like you know in her later performances. Like, because I don't know what I like about it is that we've covered a bunch of songs that on this podcast that try to sound like a train but this is a rare mm, case where yeah. the train ride itself is pretty sedate and everything going off the rails is completely internal and I love that sense of contrast yeah I do like that she resisted the temptation to make the song about being on a train sound like a train yeah <laughs> that's the obvious choice and she doesn't make the obvious choice uh, I like this one but I'm I'm, I'm closer to Amanda on this the thing is, like, I have very little to say about it. Uh, I mean, it almost to me like feels like the replacement level Court and Spark track. It's the one that gets by the most on the fact that it sounds like something from Court and Spark. But Court and Spark is an awesome sound, so that takes it a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I do think that the low keys, laid back nature of it, along those lines. Um, I can see the argument for that by itself being something to elevate it. I love basically everything on this album uh, to some degree or another. Uh, so something has to drift towards the bottom, but I, mm-hmm. I still really like this one. Ben, what about you? Is this the damage incorporated of Cord and Spark, would you say? It could be, <laughs> but no. Yeah, th- this one escapes me. So I kind of agree with you guys. If you asked me who sang the song Just Like This Train, I wouldn't have any recollection that there was a song called Just Like This Train. Uh, When it's on, it's pleasant. I really like that ascending acoustic riff. Uh, Joni is as personable and magnetic as ever, but there's just not much going on here. I respect that Joni hears something in it that that means something to her, and, and she probably knows way better than me. But I just don't hear a lot in it. Well, there you have it. I'm the one person here who rides for just like this train. <laughs> there you go. I stand <laughs> proud. All right. If we're done here, let's move on to track nine. This is Raised on Robbery. Yeah, it is. He was sitting in the lounge of the Empire Hotel. He was drinking for diversion. He was thinking for himself. A little money riding on the maple leaves. Along comes a lady in lacy sleeves. She says, let me sit down, you know, drinking alone. It's a shame, it's a shame, it's a grand shame.
This incredibly fun little number was actually the first single released slightly in advance of the album. It peaked at number 65 in February of 1974 because the record buying public didn't know what was good for him. <laughs> the number one hit that week was The Way We Were by Barbara Streisand. Sure. And the rest of the Hot 100 is the typical mid-70s mix of Stone Cold classics and absolute trash. <laughs> this is not quite a Stone Cold classic by radio hit standards, but it is so much fun. Yeah. The sound of it can best be summed up by asking the question, what if the Andrews sisters tried out funk? (laughs) Now, if you're not familiar with the Andrews sisters, first of all, boy, have you got a fun journey ahead of you. But they were a singing group popular in the 1940s. The song you're most likely to recognize is Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. They made him blow a bugle for his Uncle Sam. It really brought him down because he couldn't jam. The captain seemed to understand. Because the next day the cap went out and drafted a band. And now the company jumps when he plays Reveille. He's the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B. A toot, a toot, a toot, a toot, a blows it to the bar. In boogie rhythm, you can't blow a note unless the bass and guitar is playing with them. He makes a company jump when he plays Reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. He was a boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. I thought that song was by the Chipettes. You were mistaken. <laughs> Raystone Robbery sounds like jump blues to me, which is what Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy is, too. And I love how she borrowed that old timey trick of having a little intro that doesn't really sound like any of the rest of the song. And then the funky part comes in, which is helped along by a rock and electric guitar played by Robbie Robertson. And it but it's largely driven by the clavinet played by Joe Sample. Now, I realized while I was writing this up that we've mentioned the clavinet several times on this show, but I still don't really know what that is besides that cool boingy sounding Hmm. keyboard thing. So, producer Mike, what's a clavinet? The Honer clavinet was first introduced to the world in 1964 and is nothing more or less than an amplified clavichord. The clavichord dates all the way back to the 1400s and can be thought of as a smaller version of a harpsichord except that a harpsichord sound comes from its strings being plucked, whereas a clavichord strings are struck by small metal blades called tangents, which we try to keep to a minimum at Discordant Rhyme. The sound of an unamplified clavichord can be heard in the following clip from a recording of Bach's The Well-Tempered Clavier, played by Ralph Kirkpatrick. What do you think, Max? The problem with the clavichord, though, is that it is a very quiet instrument, and unless you're sitting within a few feet of it, you won't hear much at all. But if we amplify the clavichord, we get a sound like this. That was Let Go of You Girl by The Left Bank from 1967, possibly the first song ever released with a clavinet on it. Shortly thereafter, it was discovered by Stevie Wonder, and we all know what he did with it. (laughs) 
The sound you hear on Raised on Robbery is that of a clavinet fed through a wah-wah pedal, a combination highly recommended for maximum funky boinginess. The first keyboardist to put the two together is generally believed to be Garth Hudson of the band, who used a wad clavinet to imitate the sound of a jaw harp on their 1969 hit Up on Cripple Creek. Robbie Robertson would probably tell you it was his idea, though. As always, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Joni sets the scene lyrically by describing this poor bastard who's just trying to chill out in a hotel bar and watch a hockey game, having foolishly bet money on the Toronto Maple Leafs. Although, to be fair, I did check with my Canadian-born lifelong hockey fan husband, and he confirmed that in 1974, it wasn't as bad of an idea to bet on the Leafs as it is now. At that point, it had only been seven years since they last won the Stanley Cup. It has now been 56 <laughs> years, and you might as well just set fire to your money as bet on the, on the Maple Leafs. <laughs> that line is so much funnier today. It is. I'm so glad it's there. It is. When you hear little money riding on the Maple Leafs, you're like, oh, that guy's having a bad day. <laughs> but his his quiet afternoon watching the game is not to be as a working girl spots him and decides to give it a shot. And she uses the most ridiculous euphemisms for sex that I have ever heard. I'm a pretty good cook sitting on my groceries. Come up to my kitchen. I'll show you my best recipes. <laughs> The way Joni sings those lines is hilariously suggestive. And when he doesn't take the bait, she shares her life story and tells him all about how she's fallen on hard times. And then when that doesn't work, she tries some light negging as a last resort until finally he just ditches her. She says, what? Where are you going? You haven't finished your drink. (laughs) (laughs) This whole song is just a riot. And it's super fun to hear Joni Mitchell let herself be silly. You know, part of what I love about this actually ties back to what I said a couple songs ago um, about how usually Joni is so mature about sex. So this one time where she just says, I'm going to do this a completely ridiculous way, like adds extra humor to it for me. It's it's so funny. It's so silly. And the thing is like, it's so out of character, both with her typical image and with the rest of the album. But like, it's an, it's an odd choice for a lead single, but it's, it's so much fun, and it I can't imagine the album without it. It would be so much lesser. I, I don't really have that much to add. It's all I can say is if I'm if I'm not careful, it it sneaks into my top three on the album, and then I think about it a little more, and, and then it slides back down. But that every time I listen to this track, it's like, are you sure this is really great? <laughs> it's so good. Just let it rise all the way to the top if it wants. I <laughs> yeah. would not argue. Yeah. This is a blast. I, I, I love this one. Yeah. It is legitimately catchy. And I mean, that goes a long way with me because I can remember it afterwards and I can play it in my head. <laughs> um, and, and so it's it's not just while it's on, but it's it's something I can enjoy the rest of the day, too. Um, I love when she just cuts loose and has a good time. And one thing I really like is hearing her acoustic guitar in the context of a rock arrangement you normally yeah. don't hear that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying she's adding a ton to it. It's just a cool juxtaposition, like her normal kind of acoustic scratching, but then a rock band and, and a funky rock band playing too. So I, I like that it's there accompanying them. So yeah, I love this one. 
I enjoy this one just fine, but I, I'm going to be honest. It's probably my least favorite song on the album. Wow. I can see that. Oh, I, wow. Well, this is the court and spark curve. That means that every other yeah. song gets an A or an A plus, And this one only gets like an A minus. And down to you, I would probably also give an A minus. I hate rating things, guys. I hate rating things. So <laughs> yeah. everything gets an A. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I guess my reasoning behind this, though, is I think it's because like Joni and her band are so generous to each other on the rest of the album. Like, you know, I mentioned Larry Carlton earlier and I can like his guitar on most of the songs is so subtle that I have to like actively listen to make out his parts. Like, whereas mm-hmm. on this song, you've got Robbie Robertson right at the front of the mix going like, hell yeah, this is a rock song and I'm playing guitar. <laughs> and then. You know, then Martin Scorsese directed a documentary about how he's the most important contributor to Courtney Spark. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was just going to say, you've seen The Last Waltz. You know, that is just Robbie Robertson's jam. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not out of character. Yeah, but I, I don't want to mischaracterize myself as not liking this song. It's really good. And I, I, I think it's those Andrew sisters harmonies that Amanda mentioned that really like bring it home for me. Like they're the element that keeps this from just being like another rock song. And they, they really make the whole thing sparkle. So, yeah, yeah it might be my least favorite, but it's still really good. All right, with all that, next track is called Trouble Child. So what are you gonna do about it? You can't live life and you can't leave it. Advice and religion, you can't take it. You can't seem to believe it. The peacock is afraid to evening when Jackson Brown didn't show up and Joni was left listening for his car on the hill. According to Sheila Weller in her book Girls Like Us, which was one of my main sources for this episode, that was the night when Joni Mitchell attempted suicide. I am not going to speculate on the reasons why she did that because that would be gross and inappropriate and unnecessary, but it seems clear that she was in a difficult emotional place at the time. Afterward, she reportedly spent some time in a residential psychiatric treatment facility, and that is what Trouble Child is about. Although I should definitely add that more recently, Joni herself has denied all this, so take that into account. Lyrically, this is a deeply sympathetic song. Assuming that it is indeed about spending time in a psychiatric treatment center, she's very kind to herself about it, which is lovely to hear. The lyrics are entirely free of any kind of judgment. It's just a beautiful description of the emotional state one might be in, in that setting. I especially love the line, you really can't give love in this condition, still you know how you need it. And the rest of the song makes it clear that the point of this experience is to try to improve. The description of the treatment process is also very profound. They open and close you. They act like they know you. They don't know you. They're friends and they're foes too. 
There's a bit in there, like I talked about in that one line in Help Me, where the melody in the line, they don't know you, mimics what that would sound like if it were spoken in a somewhat incredulous and annoyed tone. They don't know you. It's so smart. And then we get the title phrase, Troubled Child Breaking Like the Waves at Malibu. I think that image was chosen very deliberately because that is how Joni Mitchell made all her lyrical choices and also because it makes perfect sense. I've seen the waves breaking at Malibu and on many other shores, and they are beautiful and powerful. And after they break, they roll back and try again. It's impossible to stop them. Ooh, I like it. Mm. However, in spite of all that brilliance, musically, I find this one a little unsatisfying. That's probably on purpose, though, given the subject matter. But I also think this is the one track on the album that might be just a little smidgen overproduced. Specifically, I could do without the trumpets. They're not overbearing or anything, and I like the muted trumpet sound, but they they feel out of place and a little distracting. But they do lead up to the little solo flourish at the end, which we'll hear when we move on to the next track, because it transitions into the next song really nicely. So there's definitely a purpose to them, but it's still an element I'm not especially fond of. But overall, I think I, I still think this song is incredible. This is another one of the songs that just doesn't stick with me. So I'm I'm with what Amanda said about kind of musically, there's not a lot going on here. It's nice while it's on. It's pretty and beautifully sung and sharply played. And I know that whenever Joni Mitchell is harmonizing with herself and those drums are painting a picture of the breaking waves at Malibu, which is a really clever aspect, I should just appreciate the beauty and not complain about anything. I would probably be a lot happier overall. Uh, <laughs> but then the song stops, and I don't even remember that there's a song called Trouble Child on Court and Spark. Uh, so, yeah, she's written sharper songs than this. I, well, to go back to those trumpets, I actually really like them. And I, I, I think they yeah. fit in pretty well thematically in kind of a weird way. And bear with me here because this is going to be kind of a stretch. Mm. But <laughs> so I, I'm in therapy. It's in, It's been one of the best decisions of my life. And one of the reasons... I like my therapist is that like she doesn't do what Joni Mitchell says in this song. Like she doesn't treat me like a puzzle she needs to figure out, which I think mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I get the sense that that was like the tendency among a lot of therapists in the 70s. And like my therapist is mostly just there to listen and like gently nudge my train of thought where it needs to go. And to go back to those trumpets, like you said, Amanda, they're muted trumpets. They're a loud noise being blocked at the outlet. And for me, yeah. they give like kind of the effect of somebody screaming into a pillow. And oh. I, 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 I highly and I. And I highly doubt that this is how Joni and the band intended it, but it's still like very evocative to me to like hear her sing about like doctors trying to like figure out her brain while this instrument that like has no mouth but must scream is playing in the background. So I I, I like the whole package of the song a lot. And she does. There is a bit in the lyrics about feeling weak and spacey. And so that also fits with the the very loud trumpet being blocked and muted. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, they're very insistent mute, muted trumpets. That's kind of why I br- it put that image into my into my head. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like that too. As for me, this has been kind of an odd one for me because even after I really came around on this album, this was the last one um, to really start to make an impression on me. This was the one where I I would start to lose track of of where I was in the album, and that I'd I'd be kind of surprised when it was like, oh the Oh, the album's ending after this one. I, I would forget that, that this was the track in that slot. I, I think that the opening 
riff that da 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 da. Like it's it's a little bit sluggish mm-hmm. for my taste. Like I don't and it it kind of just lulls me. But the thing is, I then get snapped into a really, really happy, blissful state when that chorus comes in. It's a yeah. song that like threatens for a little bit to almost be one that I dislike. And then I love uh, that chorus so much. It's so cathartic. It's so cleansing that it ends up lifting my opinion of of the song a lot, mm-hmm. and which ends up making it a middling track on this impeccable, amazing album. Yeah. <laughs> because not everything, not everything can be the best. But this is probably near the bottom for me, but it's, it's really, really good. Hmm. Yeah. All right. We are at the end now. This last track is called Twisted. Oh yeah, daddy-o. <laughs> Analyst told me that I was right out of my head The way he described it He said I'd be better dead than life I didn't listen to his jive I knew all along that he was all wrong And I knew that he thought I was crazy but I'm not Don't know My analyst told me that I was right out of my head He said I'd need treatment But I'm not that easily led, he said I was the type that was most inclined Went out of his sight to be out of my mind And he thought I was nuts No more ifs or ands or buts They say as a child I appeared a little bit wild With all my crazy ideas But I knew what was happening I knew I was a genius What's so strange when you know that you're a wizard at three? I knew that this was meant to be. This is actually a cover, which is very, very unusual. Most times other people cover songs that Joni Mitchell wrote, not the other way around. But this particular choice is pure genius. After the very, very serious troubled child, she's following through on her desire, she stated earlier, to laugh it all away. And this is another song about mental health, only it's a total goof. Twisted was co-written and first performed by jazz singer Annie Ross, who released it in 1965. My analyst told me that I was right out of my head. He said I need treatment, but I'm not that easily led. He said I was the type that was most inclined, went out of his sight, me out of my mind. And he thought I was nuts. No more is our answer, but so no. I never knew this was a cover. Wow. It's a surprise, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Joni did a, a, a reasonably straight cover. It's still a pure jazz song with a little bit different arrangement and Joni being a total ham with her vocal performance. I am especially in love with the way she sings the word genius. It's so funny. And when she talks about, you know, her analyst, my analyst told me I was right out of my head and her, she sounds so bratty. Like, uh I am doing just fine. And to really play up the humor, a little bit later in the song, there's a cameo appearance by Cheech Marin and Tommy Chong. Yeah. (laughs) After a very funny description of refusing to ride in a double-decker bus because there's no driver up on the top, we get some background commentary from none other than Cheech and Chong. I had a pretty position. Refused to ride on all those double decker buses, all because there was no driver on the top. What, no driver on the top? And the chick is twisted, crazy, oops, 
But I was right out of so my head. So good. If you listen carefully to the lyrics, this is actually dark as hell. The narrator is denying that she's got any problems whatsoever and then describes getting blackout drunk on vodka at age three, among other very alarming scenarios, and continues to refuse treatment. It is just the blackest of humor. And because of Joni's very goofy delivery and Annie Ross's as well in the original recording, it totally works. I love the choice to wrap up a very serious album with a full on comedy number. It's an encore. It is, yeah. Yeah. yeah I think it, they literally it, intended it that way. Yeah. It, it sounds that way and it completely works. I like the idea of, you know, an album that otherwise, you know, feels like a suite and has like a fairly consistent mood going a totally different direction for the end. What what it reminds me of, um, we talked about this way, way back when, is on uh, Setting Suns by the Jam when they end with Heat Wave. Ooh, oh, yeah. yeah. Good call. Oh. And, and I love the effect there. Like I, I could see where somebody would be like, well, it doesn't, it's not consistent with the rest of it. It's like, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And one of the things that, I, that really strikes me with this is this is a pretty short album by 1974 standards. And, and I feel like if, if someone wasn't thinking as putting this together, someone might have had the notion that they should have squeezed in one more song before this. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in 1974, you know, 40 minutes is what 30 minutes had been 10 years previous. Like that, it was a it was a a time that people are trying to get to, and and this clocks in at like thirty seven, maybe a little under. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I like the way that you know not only does this this album end on such a satisfying and and cheery uplifting note, but it also slightly leaves me wanting more, and I mean that in a good way. It does. This is an album yeah. that does not overstay its welcome at all. Yeah. If anything, it's the type of album that might make me like inclined as soon as it's done to to hit play just to listen to it all over again. And it's really good when I've done an that album before. can do that. I've yeah, done that in the last few days. It's a wonderful yeah. experience. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of of Twisted unto itself and as a closer. Yeah, I really like this. I, I didn't realize it was a cover, like I said, uh, but she just sings it so it's such a fun way. I like that this is how she she ends the album. Another comparison I think of is uh, Your Majesty. I know that one yes. ended up yeah. kind of accidentally at the end of Abbey Road, but it's a great way to deflate the whole thing at the end uh, so it's not mm-hmm. too serious. The one thing is I, I wish there was more Cheech and Chong. Like I, I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> she brought them all the way down to show up for basically three seconds. So all I can say is I hope she paid them scale for a full three-hour session, even if she only used them for a couple seconds. Well, I'm going to take your heat wave and Her Majesty comparisons and raise you one. So Twisted is to Court and Spark as Tossed Salads and Scrambled Eggs is to the show Frasier. Perfect. Ooh. Oh, yes. 10 out of 10. No good. notes. Good, good. <laughs> hey, baby, I hear the blues are calling Tossed Salads and Scrambled Eggs. Quite stylish. Love it. And maybe I seem a bit confused. Yeah, maybe. But I got you pegged. But I don't know what to do with those tossed salads and scrambled eggs. They're calling again. Joni has left the building. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a song about therapy that comes at the end and it deflates the whole experience on just the right note. I love it. Yeah, it's amazing. Perfect. (laughs) And we are done with the album. So Amanda, 
What are your final thoughts? Card and Spark is an album that is not just good or even excellent. It is awe-inspiring. This might be the archetypal example of an album that is catchy and accessible on the surface, but the closer you look at it, the deeper and more complex it gets. It actually reminds me of Paul McCartney's album Ram in that way, only Court and Spark is much more extreme. If you're not listening closely, you might not realize that songs like Help Me and Free Man in Paris are as odd and complicated as they are, because they are odd and complicated, but also extremely enjoyable and catchy. This album is a lot, but it's wrapped up in such an appealing musical package that it pulls you all the way in, and then you realize you're you're over your head, but it sure feels nice, mm-hmm. as Christine McVie put it. Listening to Cart and Spark feels like being wrapped in a very warm, fluffy blanket while you process all of your deepest emotions, and that is an astonishing artistic achievement. That was very well said, Amanda. I went into this one thinking I loved Cord and Spark more than I, it turns out that I do because it's Joni Mitchell from her classic period of, of course, it's great. So I didn't come here just to boo it. Cord and Spark is not Garfunkel and Oates. Um, <laughs> the album has a ton going for it. Joni's vocals are gorgeous the whole way through and, and she deploys them so cleverly. It's a serious album. She's not being flippant or tossing anything off, except in the last song, and that's to great effect. The The production is intricate and interesting. It's just hard for me to get around how light it all is to my ears. Everything's expertly played, and it's also barely there. And when you combine that sound, that wispy sound, with a number of songs that I don't think are among Joni's sharpest, at least melodically, you have an album that for me, it's just too often flutters in the wind without making a deep impression. It just sounds slight to me. I've loved learning about this album and and hearing what you all have had to say about it, especially Amanda. And I'm going to keep listening because I want to get closer to what you all are hearing. I'm I'm just not there yet. Well, I would just like to take the opportunity to formally Welcome Joni Mitchell to the Discord and Rhyme Two Timers Club. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that makes it sound like she's a two timer. I mean, <laughs> we have done two episodes about her. Yes. <laughs> anyway, that's a distinction that that's only held by the Beatles, Stevie Wonder, and of course the Moody Blues. And I think Joni Mitchell very much deserves to be in that very just legendary company right there. Hundred yeah. percent. But yeah, Cord and Spark is like the kind of album that makes me wish that we could cover every classic Joni Mitchell album if we had like the time and resources. There's just so much going on. And like Amanda said, like, you know, you can just keep digging deeper and keep finding new details. It's amazing to me. As of today, if if I were asked to name what is my favorite Joni Mitchell album, it would be Blue. I really love Blue. I think that's in terms of the emotional depths that that it hits and maybe a little more crispness in the songwriting. I think that by the slightest edge, I would put it over this one. But it is very likely, not guaranteed, but very likely that I listen to this another 10 years, another 20 years. This is the album from hers that I can see just going up and up and up in my mm-hmm. overall rankings. I could absolutely see a situation where 60-year-old John has this in very esteemed company. I adore this album. Again, like there's there's little bits here and there that you know, I, I might say uh it's a little less interesting, but again, not every brush stroke in the Sistine Chapel is perfect. This 
is is about as close to perfect of a mid seventies pop and yet not quite pop album as I can imagine. I absolutely love it, and I'm so so glad I finally joined the Church of Joni. Me <laughs> <laughs> too. So, Matta, for someone who rightly loves Joni Mitchell and enjoys this album, what would you recommend next? Well, if you're into Court and Spark and you somehow don't know Ladies of the Canyon, I I I would go listen to Ladies of the Canyon if I were you. Uh, that's a couple, several albums prior to Court and Spark. And that's where Big Yellow Taxi is, which I don't actually like all that much, if I'm being honest. But it also has the Circle Game and her recording of Woodstock, plus the opening track Morning Morgantown, which makes my face turn into the hard eyes emoji every time I hear it. When morning comes to Morgantown, the merchants roll their awnings down. The milk trucks make their morning rounds in morning Morgantown. We'll rise up early with the sun to ride the bus while everyone is yawning and the day is young. In morning, Morgan Town. Morning, Morgan Town. Buy your dreams a dollar down. Morning, any town you may. Morning's just the same. And then. If you want to branch out into other artists with a Joni Mitchell vibe, I highly recommend getting into Nick Drake if you haven't already done that. He is also a very interesting songwriter with unusual guitar techniques. And while he's not quite in the same league as Joni from a lyrical standpoint, because nobody is, he's pretty close. His second album, Brighter Later, has a pretty similar sound to Court and Spark, although it actually came out three years prior. And it's just all around spectacular. If if you like how Court and Spark sounds, you're gonna like Brighter Later. Do you curse where you come from? Do you swear in the night? Would it mean much to you if I treat you right? Or do you like what you're doing? Would you do it some more? Or will you stop once and wonder what you're doing it for? Hey, slow Jane, make sense. Slow, slow Jane, cross. There's a, a four-year statute of limitations on recommendations. Uh, <laughs> check the law. I didn't write it. Uh, so I'm going with the same album I recommended back in our Blue episode, which is Hijira, uh, which is my second favorite Joni mm. album after Blue. It's not as hooky an album as I would normally prefer that, that Joni's music is. So maybe I'm just a big hypocrite given everything I've talked about today. But 
even when the songs are lacking catchy choruses, they, they hit your brain and they hit your heart. Joni's voice and, and twangy guitar strumming are right next to you. Her lyrics expertly use personal stories to make universal statements. And there's a lot of that eternal battle between love and freedom that Rich talked about earlier. Her backing band is spacey, jazzy, and supportive. So put together, it's a subtle album, but it's absolutely majestic too. different sets of circumstance I'm up all night in the studios and you're up early on your ranch you'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail while the sun is ascending and I'll just be getting home with my real to real there's no comprehending just how close to the bone and the skin and the eyes and the lips you can get and still feel so alone and still feel relaxed Stations in some relay, you're not a, a hit and run driver, no, no, racing away. You just picked up a hitcher, cruised around the white lines on the freeway. So as for me, I would start by noting that if I could do it all over again, uh, I would have bought Ladies of the Canyon first. In many ways, that was the album that largely started the avalanche of converting me into into really loving her but since amanda has already mentioned that i want to stump for the albums that surround court and spark so i will start with for the roses which uh it, it has the hit you turn me on i'm a radio and other songs that sound nothing like it in terms of accessibility <laughs> that album is a hard nut to crack it is so worth it even if you get to a point where you're only halfway uh, have a grip on what's going on. Um, that halfway is going to be enough. I, I love many songs are there. One in particular that I would recommend, uh, that people listen to if they're unfamiliar with it is called let the wind carry me. It is mm. devastating to listen to. And it just has some incredible, uh, Joni vocal performances on an album filled with incredible Joni vocal performances. She don't like my kick plate skirt She don't like my eyelids painted green She don't like me staying up late in my high-heeled shoes Living for that rock and roll dancing scene Up this is leave the girl alone, mother She's looking like a movie queen album that I am so happy I get to recommend in this slot and it in some ways has always been my destiny to recommend this album on this podcast is the album The Hissing of Summer Lawns which largely trashed Jody's reputation and used up all the goodwill uh, that she gained with this one and wrongly so. Joni Mitchell was furious that people did not love that album. She considered it absolutely essential to her legacy. She stumped for it for the rest of her career. 
a few years ago, Pitchfork did a retrospective review of it where they gave it a 10.0. Hmm. And while I, I, I'm not sure that even they believed it, and I, I think that they were using hyperbole to make a point, I agree with the point. Um, she has to be viewed through a, a broader lens than she is often viewed. One song on there that I want to reference in particular uh, is called Shades of Scarlet Conquering. Costello in particular, absolutely adored, but there's lots of great uh, material in terms of, of sonic painting and uh, just all sorts of interesting lyrical approaches. And it's a very inventive album. It's the one that I, it's the Joni album that I would recommend either to someone who's not sure if they like Joni Mitchell or somebody who really likes Kate Bush or Bjork. And with that, we are done. And now, instead of one Joni episode, we have two. And you know, two Joni episodes are better than one. So next album, Phil will be talking about the self-titled debut by Crosby, Stills, and Nash, but not Yun, because he sucks and nobody likes him. (laughs) I would note that Amanda wrote this, and she is currently blackmailing me. (laughs) Roll credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Court and Spark and other albums by Joni Mitchell at your local record store or directly from JoniMitchell.com. You can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon, but not Spotify because of reasons. Visit our website, DiscordPod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring every song we clipped in this episode that isn't by Joni Mitchell. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at Discord Pod on Twitter for news and updates. Visit my music review archive at johnmcfarrinmusicreviews.org. Fair warning, I rate albums in hexadecimal. Court and Spark gets an E, which means it is great. It sure is. Editing is by Amanda Rogers. And special thanks to Mike DeFabio for production. Our theme song and original music. See you next album and keep as cool as you can. What's the future?
Machinery behind the popular song 